Hi, I'm Tom Melville, and welcome to Voice of Real Australia. Each episode, we bring you people, places, and perspectives from beyond the big cities. Before we get into the episode, we want to hear from you. You can help improve the podcast by taking part in our listener survey. You can find the link in our show notes. On this episode... Worst trouble is coming out of a three-year drought, a reasonable good harvest, and then flogged with the bloody mice. That's what's hurting. After years of drought, fires and floods, farmers in New South Wales have been hit by another natural disaster, a mouse plague. We find out what exactly is going on and when it will end. But first, a seaside Victorian site may well rewrite the history of human occupation of Australia and change the global story of where we came from. In Moidjul, also known as Point Ritchie, scientists working with people of the Gundijmara nation have unravelled an extraordinary human story. The Warrnambool Standards' Kira Gillespie takes us to the sacred site. From Moidjul you can gaze out over a basalt reef to the mighty Southern Ocean. In the winter and spring, southern right whales can be seen just a few hundred metres offshore. The occasional seal likes to drop by and frolic amongst the kelp. Immediately to the east of the headland is the mouth of the Hopkins River. To the west is Lady Bay and the Warrnambool Breakwater. At sunrise and sunset, the view can be breathtaking. There's more than a stunning vista to Moidjul. The rocks beneath your feet, the heath-covered dunes, and the life in the Hopkins River tell a great story. The story of a people who lived and gathered at this place for tens of thousands of years. If Moyle turns out to be proven as a human site, it will double the time of human occupation of Australia and it will also have implications for how rapidly modern humans migrated out of Africa, across Asia, down into Australia. And so it will just be another interesting chapter in the human story, and I'm sure we don't know the full human story just yet. I meet Professor John Sherwood on the rocky Moidjul clifftop on a moody autumn afternoon in Warrnambool, at the end of Victoria's iconic Great Ocean Road. Dr John Sherwood from Deakin University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences here in Warrnambool, Victoria. Some shells found here are 120,000 years old. What John wants to know is, did people put them there? If you look down here on the rock platform, you can see some very blackened stones. There are some stones which are white and only partly blackened. There are some stones which are red, but there is this clustering of very dark black stones. Moidjul, about 10 minutes drive from Warrnambool's main drag, contains the remains of shellfish, crabs and fish in cemented sand, together with charcoal, blackened stones and features which resemble campfires. You can also see over here some of these broken shell fragments that I was talking about. And if you look closely, you can see they're very sharp edged. They're not like we'd expect to find on this very high energetic ocean coast where shells are normally tumbled round and round and become smooth. The site has been the focus of intense scrutiny for decades. It all began 40 years ago when John Sherwood, then a young academic, arrived in Warrnambool from Sydney. Then, Dr Jim Bowler took an interest in the site 
the most recent phase of research, the last 10 or 12 years, developed when uh, Jim Bowler, who some people may know as the man who discovered the Lake Mungo skeletons, the oldest known cremation in the world and the oldest known ceremonial burial in the world. Jim knocked on my door one day, literally, and said that it was about time we started to do some serious work to solve the puzzle of the Moidjil site. Moidjil, which in Aboriginal language means long drag net or basket, belongs to the country of the Gunditjmara Nation. Nagara. Uh, my name's Craig Edwards. I'm the uh, Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Manager, National Resource Manager for Eastern May Aboriginal Corporation. We're on Gunditjmara country. I'm a Gunditjmara man. People run Kirae Rong language groups, but uh, I also have Wadarung flowing through my veins as well, so very proud of that. Craig and I walk out to the topmost point of the Moidjil headland. We, as Aboriginal people, don't put a time frame on that. We've been here forever. My people have been here forever. But in context of what we're looking at, you know, I mean, they're pretty close to talking about yeah. 120,000 years, which just is mind-blowing, you know, to think that that could be the case. And that just rewrites history altogether. Craig points out the areas his ancestors would have set up camp, warming their hands up against small fires and harvesting and feasting on the plants and abundant seafood. Preserved within the rocks and dunes is the story of Indigenous connection to land over tens of thousands of years. You can imagine the mobs just throwing the net across here while the eels are coming through their migration. I've seen the younger eels heading up the river and up the Hopkins Falls and they're climbing the rocks. They are an amazing, amazing animal. Such a great food source for our people and uh, our mob knew that back then. So you wouldn't have to go any further. You've got plenty of vegetation and uh, tucker around. This would have been a beautiful spot to sit here and get a good view of what's coming and what's going. And when a tucker's there, why would you have to move? John says the Gunditjmara people have been involved throughout the process but aren't massively concerned about science determining when their ancestors arrived in the area. Look, the traditional owners have been involved very heavily right through this last phase or most intense phase of our research and uh, they've been very supportive of the research. But they roll their eyes a little bit about Western scientists' fascination with dates and ages because in their beliefs, Aboriginal people have always been here and they've been here since the dream time. Um, and so they, every time I guess scientists find an older date in Australia, it only confirms their belief that they've always been here. Moidjil is a popular spot among locals. Most afternoons, the riverbanks are dotted with dog walkers and children sitting cross-legged building sandcastles with the water lapping lazily at the sandy edges. For many years, people have played and fished and walked along the site, not realising the significance of the area. Craig has fond memories of fishing here as a kid. You know, my early days are very... I love them. I think about all those times of those early days running around down there. We, we eeled. We did a lot of eeling. We ate a lot of eel mushrooming and, believe it or not, picking peas in, in the paddock. My grandmother was a really... She loved fishing. We used to come down here a little bit. Not a lot, but we were down at the Hopkins Falls a lot. Pop, he did some eel stone traps as well down on the river there. So they're still there today. Its archaeological importance has seen Moidjil given special protection by the Victorian government in 2013 through an ongoing protection declaration. 
There's no doubt the sand dune behind the 12 metre high headland is 120,000 years old. John Sherwood says controversy lies in whether humans were there too. The oldest known sites in Australia are around 50 to 60,000 years and so we have here at Moidula site that is 120,000 years old. We're very confident of the age. But of course, there are various ways that a shell bed like this could form. And what the archaeological community are saying is that if you are going to double the time of arrival of people in Australia, then you need very high level of proof. And so what the research is doing now is looking for that elusive, conclusive proof, if you like, that would establish absolutely that this site is a human site. Now. This is where it all gets a bit technical. To understand what John means by this, you have to pedal way back. Here at Moyle, we're lucky in that uh, we've got layered one on top of the other, a whole series of occupation sites by Aboriginal people. And these all contain an abundance of one particular shellfish. It's called turboundulatus. It's a, a snail shell with a beautiful green and white stripy shell pattern. And it was a major food item for Aboriginal people. And they would collect them from the rocky platforms around Moidjil and go up onto the sand dunes behind it and break open the shellfish with simple stones and eat the shellfish around campfires. However, seagulls might poke some holes in the theory. And so with good science, you have to look at all the possible causes for a site like this. And one of the possible causes is that it's due to seabirds, in particular the Pacific gull, which is a bird that we know collects turboundulatus. It flies up high on a rocky cliff and drops a shell to break the shell open on the rock. Pacific gulls will return time after time after time to the same rock and drop their shells repeatedly so that over time you get a collection of sharp edged broken fragments of basically one species. Does that sound familiar? But of course, seagulls don't like campfires, which is where the research gets interesting. But even with wildfire, the rocks here have got very, very shallow, thin soils. We know from fossil snails, land snails that we find in the sands here, that the vegetation was always a heathland, a vegetation very light timbered. And so in order to blacken stones like we find at the site, you need intense heat over four or 500 degrees for up to an hour. And those sort of fire conditions wouldn't be found on a heathland. The evidence could all be explained with a single cause, and that's a human cause. How, though, do you get very, very strong proof? The research attracted the attention of world-renowned Professor Paul Goldberg from Boston University. He came out to the site in 2020 and spent weeks extracting samples to take back to the United States to test. Then the COVID pandemic hit and the samples have been stuck in Melbourne labs, unable to be transported to the US. The last key to the mystery, potentially, is still in lockdown. So we're waiting impatiently, I must admit, but waiting for uh, the samples now to be impregnated with resin, which is the first step, and that's going to happen at the University of Wollongong. And then they'll be sent overseas to be cut into the very thin sections that Paul Goldberg will use to examine under the microscope. All of this research only confirms the belief of Aboriginal people that they have been here since the Dreamtime. The Eastern Ma Aboriginal Corporation is the registered Aboriginal party 
over a large portion of land in southwest Victoria, including the Great Ocean Road. Eastern Ma are the primary guardians, keepers, and knowledge holders for the management and protection of Aboriginal culture in the area. It wants to incorporate more Aboriginal culture into tourism experiences along the Great Ocean Road to inform and educate the wider community about traditional owner connection to country. Craig Edwards again. We need everybody to understand the, the significance of you know, the areas that they are visiting. They're walking on land that our people have been here and walking on for thousands of years. And if they understand and really acknowledge the cultural significance of that, they will be so much better off. You know, the Great Ocean Road is massive. I mean, that is second to the Great Barrier Reef in terms of tourism. It's massive, massive. And to get a a cultural perspective, because they're not getting that at the moment, there's there's sightseeing and, and a little bit of information around shipwrecks and the shipwreck coast Mm. but they're not getting a cultural perspective we are working with tourism victoria making sure that you know whoever comes to visit our beautiful country takes that back home and really understands and respects that earlier this year an ancient ceremonial stone arrangement here in western victoria was damaged by a farmer Craig says traditional owners reacted with shock and sadness after the destruction of the sacred Kuyang site in Lake Bolak. Yeah, it's a dagger in your heart, and we don't want to lose all that. They're, they've been there, we don't know whether 10, 12, 15,000, 20,000 years old. Well, I mean, you know, to know our people have been there and done that, and it's been there for that amount of time, and then to see that destroyed is just terrible. It adds to a long history of disregard for Aboriginal culture and significant sites across Australia. Craig says it makes the kind of work being done at Moyjul all the more important in preserving the country's rich Indigenous history. Unfortunately, the legalities and the legislation around protection of Aboriginal culture and heritage doesn't do enough, and we've got to change that. We've got to work with the government to make sure that these sites are protected forever. We don't want to lose them, and that's just the bottom line for me. We keep destroying. We've got nothing for our future. We've got nothing for our kids. And that's not just Aboriginal people. That's for, for all our people in Australia, you know? I mean, our history is your history. John says this has been the driving force behind his work. Well, look, it'll be very satisfying to get a final answer to something that's occupied such a large part of my scientific life. But it also, I think, will place even greater emphasis on the the longevity of Aboriginal culture and Aboriginal occupation in Australia, hopefully raise the profile of Aboriginal society and continue the process I think we've started of greater recognition of our traditional owners. John Sherwood there, waiting impatiently to rewrite the history books. Thanks to Kira Gillespie from the Warrnambool Standard for that story. Now, Regional New South Wales is under attack. A mouse plague of biblical proportions is overwhelming farms and homes from the northwest to the Riverina. It's predicted the vermin will cut the value of the state's winter crop by $1 billion, and some estimates suggest farmers are paying up to $150,000 each to combat the mice. Mouse numbers have been building since before Christmas last year, but a mild and dry march saw the population explode. Farmers and regional communities are taking a huge hit financially and mentally. So what's going on? And is it normal? And, crucially, 
Is there an end in sight? Producer Lara Corrigan finds out. At night when they were really bad, it was just a shimmering of like water. There's that many there, they were on top of each other. You just couldn't put another one in between them. They just make you feel dirty. Like they make you feel like you're a dirty person. We've got a toddler who's crawling. So um, there's also that just germs everywhere. That's always playing on your mind as well. The shops in town, they were couldn't sort of really stack anything on the shelves that wasn't either a tin or packed away in boxes, you know, like they were just into everything. And the stench of it, there's people in town getting turned away from coming to a coffee shop and just the smell of the mice, they'd just leave. I, I wouldn't know the number of mice that was coming out of this little truck. There was, there was nearly like a waterfall. It was a constant flow of mice just piling out the back of it that had got into this truck. The floor of the shed was literally alive with mice. I uh, was sleeping away, uh, you know, and all of a sudden I felt a stab in the back of my head, which was very painful. And uh, I found later that it wasn't a stab at all. It was a bite, a mouse bite. These are just some of the horror stories coming out of central New South Wales. Mice in huge numbers have been reported from southern Queensland to western Victoria. The rodents have devastated haystacks, emptied silos, made homes out of people's pantries, and their propensity to chew wires has broken down vehicles and even brought down mobile phone networks. Norman Morris from Gilgandra, farmer of probably 2,800 acres of farming, mixed farming. Uh, 65 year old, been on this farm for 50 odd years. And sometimes I wonder whether it should be here, but uh, I'll keep doing it. Norman Morris has been dealing with the mice since the end of last year. January, February, March was probably the worst one, where I was getting probably five and 6,000 a night just in the buckets around the silos and the house and that, but then we were probably poisoning probably ten to 15,000 or so. Norman is surprisingly optimistic, all things considered. He tells me there's always someone worse off than him. At the peak of the invasion, Norman was killing five to 6,000 mice per night. Now he says he's down to just five or 600. Uh, everything's a cost, but you just got to build that into your farming sort of thing. But the worst trouble is coming out of a three-year drought, a reasonable good harvest, and then flogged with the bloody mice. That's what hurt. It's physically, mentally, and monetary. Nearly every hay shed around, it's been filled up because of the good season, and the mice have just ruined them. There's blokes just burning hay stacks around because there's that many mice in there. A farmer for 50 years now, Norman has lived through his share of mouse plagues and he says this is one of the worst. Like we've kept grain there for the next drought to put away in bags and all that and the mice have just ruined them. I've lost 30 or 40 sheep and probably another 60 a crook. We had a bit of rain a while back and the water washed the mice into a dam and the sheep drank the water and got salmonella and died. So this is the introduced house mouse Mus musculus domesticus. 
probably came on the first fleet. Wonderful stowaways. They're basically everywhere where humans are on the planet. I turned to the mouse plague expert, Steve Henry, to understand more about what's going on. I'm Steve Henry and I'm a research officer with CSIRO. I guess I have a almost a slightly unique position because I sit at the interface between science and industry. And I've got a good understanding of, of cropping systems and farming systems in general. And that enables me to relay information in both directions from farmers to scientists and from scientists to farmers. Steve says a plague like this happens every 10 to 20 years after a long dry period. Sound familiar? We don't fully understand why we don't get a full-on mouse outbreak like this every time we have a good season, but it does seem to come at the end of a run of dry years. And maybe there's less stability in the population after all of those dry years. And so mice are able to breed on unchecked. The New South Wales drought broke and conditions were good for growing crops, but they were also favourable for breeding. There's lots of food and shelter around and the weather is good. So you also get a lot of the baby mice surviving. And if all of those animals are going on to breed, then the rate of increase is dramatic. Because mice start breeding when they're six weeks old and they can have a litter of six to 10 pups every 19 to 21 days after that. But also as soon as they give birth to the first litter, they fall pregnant with the second litter. So that means that the rate of increase is really dramatic. That's a lot of mice very quickly. The New South Wales government has called this mouse plague a natural disaster and it's providing a $100 million assistance package to those affected. Households and shops can claim a rebate of up to $1,000 for mouse bait. Farmers can get 50% back up to $10,000. And the government has put its support behind the rat poison bromodilone. It plans to provide the bait free for farmers if it's approved by the regulator. The safety of the anticoagulant has been questioned because the mouse carcass becomes toxic, putting other animals at risk. For now, the bait of choice is zinc phosphide, but that doesn't come without its own risks either. Several people have been poisoned by the industrial strength bait. So my name's Xavier Martin and I'm Vice President of New South Wales Farmers Association and I farm on the Liverpool Plains near Gunnedah. You know, when I walked into the office here a minute ago, I kicked three or four mice out of the road of the door as I came in. It's a plague. New South Wales Farmers Association have surveyed their members to try measure the impact of the mouse plague. They estimate the cost so far to be at least $1 billion. 40% of farmers are reducing their area, and of those that are reducing, the average reduction is 30% of their farm area. So that's how we very quickly factor in the crop types and how we quickly come to over a billion dollars worth of farm gate value, an extraordinary hit on the rural economy, the farm economy. We're also seeing just what the impact is economically across fodder and pastures, improvements, you know, the damage in sheds and houses. The survey of 2,000 respondents looked at the impact of the plague on mental health as well. Most importantly, the impact on human health and mental health, uh, the feedback we had was really quite extraordinary. And, you know, to see 93% are concerned the plague has led to unsafe accommodation for their family and employees, and 97% feel the stress levels in making farm business decisions are significant, and 30% of those say they're very impacted. I'm Andrew Buffler. We farm in southern New South Wales uh, near a little town called Lockhart, which is about 60 k's 
west of Wagga. River arena farmer Andrew Buffler says the mouse plague feels inescapable sometimes. When you're dealing with a good drought, I've got quite a good ability to walk away from my problems at the end of the day and shut the door and grab a beer and leave the problem outside. But mice don't like to play by the same set of rules. They like to follow you inside. So when you try to get to some respite from a reasonably tough autumn to go in and first thing you do is change half a dozen mouse traps and then you sit down and then the mouse comes out and you hear the traps going off and we've poisoned on under the house and the smell as you walk in your back door is not overly pleasant. Andrew says he tries not to ruminate on what could have been. My main advice for mental health and things is to not beat yourself up with the advantage of hindsight. Sometimes that right decision you make at the time ends up being a good decision. Sometimes it ends up being a poor decision. But with the information at hand, if you make what you think is the right decision but it ends up having a poor outcome, you can't beat yourself up. New South Wales Farmers Association welcomed the government's commitment of $100 million, but Xavier Martin says they're sceptical about how it will be spent. There doesn't seem to be anything meaningful coming back to the paddock at this stage that actually kills mice. Not one mouse has been killed by this program yet that we're aware of. You know, whilst the optics are great, that A, yes, it's a natural disaster, big tick, B, dots, another big tick, C, is it killing mice? No, it's not. So (laughs) at the moment, it's an impractical offer. Of course, money and mental health aren't the only concerns. Health professionals warn that mice carry disease. The doctor said to me, what made you call an ambulance on the Monday? And he said, that phone call saved your life. In all honesty, he said you wouldn't have lasted till the morning. Daryl Jordanson runs a cattle and crop farm in Gilarganbone, northwestern New South Wales. At the beginning of this year, after harvest, he started to feel very lethargic and sore in his joints. I knew I didn't feel right. I was starting to get a bit down over it all and I just was achieving nothing during the day and battled on with that for three months and just feeling like that. And in about January, I... I began to get a sore neck, like a really, really sore neck, like I jarred my neck. He went to a chiropractor and pushed on. Then in February, his symptoms worsened. I woke up one morning and my left knee was like the size of a football, just all swollen up. And I said to my wife, I said, she said, you must have bumped it. And I said, no, I haven't done anything to it. I just woke up like this and it's all swollen. And about three days later, um, it went down and I... I started feeling like I was coming down the flu. I was hot and I was cold. He was knocked down by fever on a day out in Dubbo. He tried to sleep it off at home, but the flu-like symptoms persisted. He had a fever of 40 and a half degrees. I didn't get any sleep and this back of my neck was starting really ache. I had a headache that got really bad. I became sensitive to light. I couldn't handle the curtains in the room being opened and I made the decision. I said to Kylie, my wife, I said, just, um, you better call an ambulance. I said, I'm not good here. I said, I don't know what's going on. Doctors tested him for Ross River fever, Q fever and COVID-19, of course. He had symptoms of meningitis, so they performed a lumbar puncture to get a sample of his spinal fluid for testing. And they came in and, and he said he had some good news and some bad news. And I said, oh, you better give me the good news first. And he said, we've confirmed you've got meningitis. And I said, oh, that's good. And he said, yeah, and we can start treating that. He said, but the bad news is your cell count was 211. And he said, you've got a massive infection in your brain fluid and your spinal cord. I could sense there was a little bit of urgency and panic in his voice when he was telling me this. And 
the big risk is that with with an infection in your brain fluid like that, with the inflammation, your skull can't expand, so it puts pressure on your brain. Some of the, uh, the side effects of that are brain damage or strokes. After a week in hospital, Daryl was taken home where he stayed in bed for four weeks, recovering. He's the first known person in Australia to contract lymphocytic chiromeningitis, a rodent-borne disease. I had plenty of time in bed, so I started reading up on on this and I found out that one in three household mice carry the virus. I talked to the doctor about this and he said, look, it would have been, you know, as easy as just not washing your hands after dealing with a trap or feeding a, a bale of hay out with some urine on the string. He said it's, it could also be aerosol, like it could be spread in the wind, you know, with it. With, with some fur or something like that. They don't know a hell of a lot about it, obviously, because no one's had it. Daryl says it took him six weeks to get his energy back, to start eating properly again. He'd lost 11 kilos. He kept waiting to discover some severe side effects, but thankfully hasn't noticed anything major, but says his hearing isn't what it was. After his ordeal, Daryl's biggest piece of advice is don't put off seeing your doctor. be a lot of other farmers, or not just farmers, but a lot of other men that could take a bit of advice if you are, I'm no different to anybody else. I feel like you're getting the flu, take a bit of Nurofen and go to bed and, you know, battle on. But I think if you, even if you have minor signs of being sick, I think like like I had with the high temperature and, and feeling bad like that, just, just get to the doctor, you know. It's, um, it's not worth it to think that she'll be right, mate. I'll come good, you know. What most people affected by this plague want to know is when will it end? Expert Steve Henry says mice often follow a boom and bust trend where their population becomes unsustainable and crashes out. And so what happens is as mouse numbers get really, really high, that facilitates disease to spread through the population. At the same time that that's happening, we're getting animals becoming stressed. They're running out of food. They turn on each other and start to eat the sick and weak ones but then they also are eating babies as well, so all the time. So it's a bit of a horror story, but all of those things together facilitate this monumental crash in the population. And farmers will start to ring me almost overnight and say, look, where have my mice gone? They've just disappeared. But Steve tells me these plagues can have a one or two year cycle, that a harsh winter can finish them off. But this winter is looking pretty mild. If the mice can survive until spring, this could mean a whole other year of plague. Government-backed studies are taking place into the genetic biocontrol of mice, but that kind of prevention is a long way off. For now, Steve says the best thing to do is get ahead of the mice. At the time that they start to think that they're seeing a few mice and they might be a problem, that might be almost too late. So what we're saying is that they need to be monitoring early and even when they think there aren't too many in the population, maybe that's the time that they should be getting ready to bait because if they've got 200 mice per hectare and 100 of those are females and you think that's not too many, in three weeks' time there could be 800 mice per hectare if they all have six babies. Birds of prey are enjoying extra meals. Murray Cod are having a bumper year as they pick off mice trying to swim across rivers and thankfully the mice aren't competing with other small mammals for food so their impact on native wildlife is small. But farmers and other New South Welshmen will certainly be happy to see the end of it. Xavier Martin from New South Wales Farmers again.
What's really disheartening is the double whammy where farmers are going to lose out because they don't plant particular paddocks for particular crops and the whole community, the whole economy of New South Wales and Australia then suffers because of that loss of the multiplier effect. You know, if this explodes into the spring like the experts are telling us it's likely to, the sort of hit on our gross domestic product will be very significant. And uh, it's only at that point with perfect rear vision that we'll probably see some of these decision makers realise what a mess they've made. Farmer Andrew Buffler isn't letting the plague get him down. It's agriculture. I often say to myself, I choose to farm the driest continent on the planet. So we're going to deal with droughts and that. No one's got a gun at my head to be a farmer. I choose to do it. It's the most wonderful lifestyle. It's a great place to bring up your kids. Agriculture's been great to me, so... The mice plague is just another little hiccup along the way, but it's nothing too dramatic really at the end of the day. We'll just deal with it, move on and uh, wait for the next challenge or opportunity, I guess. And neither does farmer Norman Morris. Uh, Keep smiling. It's got to get better, but we're still in a lucky country. We've got flood, fires and all that and mice plagues and grasshopper plagues, so... Just keep, keep, keep on going. We're, we're far better off than a lot of other countries, I think. Norman Morris there with some upbeat words. He was speaking to producer Lara Corrigan. That's it for this episode of Voice of Real Australia. Thank you so much for listening. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and I'll be back in a couple of weeks. If you like the podcast, please tell your friends and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. If you'd like to share your story, email voice at ostcommunitymedia.com.au. That's voice at ost, A-U-S-T, communitymedia.com.au. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash Voice of Real Australia. You can follow me on Twitter at Tom Melville124. Voice of Real Australia is recorded in the studios of the Newcastle Herald. It's produced by Lara Corrigan and me, your host, Tom Melville. Special thanks this week go to Grace Ryan, Teldon Nelson, and the teams at the Daily Liberal, the Mudgee Guardian, and the Central Western Daily. Our editors are Gail Tomlinson and Chad Watson. This is an ACM podcast. Mm-hmm.